Good evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we, we bow down and worship before you and exalt your name amongst men for the love which you have displayed through your Son in offering him up as a sacrifice that we might be made pure in your sight, that that separation which our sins had placed between you and us has been forever dwelt with. Father, we pray that you, tonight that your word would go forth, that you would help me not to get in the way, that we would hear you speak for the blessing of your word and that we might then become blessings to others by living out that which you have put upon our hearts. We ask this in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to speak tonight on personal work, the gospel. You know, as Christians, we're commanded uh, to spread the gospel. We're not all called to be evangelists, but we are all called to be witnesses. So we're going to talk about the gospel, what it is, what we do with it, and perhaps how we can best share it with others. Now, as many of you know, I'm, I'm involved in street preaching. Uh, I call it group evangelism, where we go out and we preach. One preacher stands up and preaches to a crowd. But, you know, even in the aftermath of that, our goal is to have one-on-one -on -one personal contact with those that we come in contact with there. Because that is the best way to answer the questions and to let the Spirit work as you have interactions one with another. Some of the techniques we employ when we're counseling on the street, they're fully applicable to uh, personal work, to uh, the, our day in and day out conversations with one another. And as I finish tonight, I hope to give you some suggestions on things that work for me and that I'm aware of that other people use. Because I remember Greg Laurie once saying, everybody's uptight about the gospel, the people who are preaching it and the people who are receiving it. So we're all in the same boat. We just don't want to let anything inhibit us from sharing the good news. And yet, we're given specific instructions on what we must say and we're given an awful lot of guidance in the manner that it ought to be delivered. As Alistair Begg once said, if you, can't, if you can give the gospel without tears, without a broken heart, you're, you're probably not in the right spot to be sharing the gospel. You know, Paul would say, writing to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So we don't want to be ashamed of it. We might be frightened, but none of that is an excuse not to move forward. You know, <laughs> tell you, the warrior on the battlefield, it's not that you're not afraid, but your duty and your job is to go into the fray. Firefighters, you know, <laughs> you can't put out the fire unless you get close to it. We're called to do this. So I'm going to spend some time thinking about it, and I'll start out with some foundational thoughts about the gospel. You know, there's one gospel, but there's two outcomes, only two possible. It's either heaven or hell for every man, woman, or child on the face of this earth. And if, again, if we grasp that and, and that becomes part of us, that's going to motivate us to move forward. If we look at every person who is alive as one who one day is either going to be a glorious creature in the presence of God or they're going to be some unimaginable, horrific creature who has a body that's been prepared to dwell forever in the lake of fire. That should grab us. That should get our attention. I'll say right up front, it is not our job to beat people into submission. Jesus said, go out. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Some foundational thoughts. You know, uh, all roads lead to God. Yes, they, re they really do. Some of you have heard me say this before. I love it when I'm out talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And about salvation, they tell me, well, I believe all roads lead to God. And I often tell them, that's, I love it because I get to agree with them. And many of them are perplexed. They, that's not the response that they expect. But, of course, my view of all roads leading to God is a little different than theirs. But it gives me the opportunity uh, to speak about the two places that those roads lead. One's to the Bema seat, which is for believers. If you're at Bema being, and your work's being judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on your way to heaven. But if you end up at the other one, the great white throne judgment, that's a terrible place to be. I suspect, and I'll talk about it a little later, I suspect we're going to witness that. We're going to see all that that takes place at the great white throne judgment. So it becomes heaven or hell. That's the only possibilities. Jesus has said in John 5, 24, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. You'll not come into judgment, but have already passed from death unto life. Revelation 21, 27 tells us those are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The opposite of that are those we find in Revelation 20. Those who are not found written in the book of life are cast forever into the lake of fire. So some foundational thoughts. All roads lead to God. It's either heaven or hell, but also God's decision is final. Proverbs 19, where we're told, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. In Ezekiel 18, he says, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father and the soul of the Son, and the soul that sins must die. He can do with the souls what he will, and he has told us what is going to happen. You know, in that same chapter, Ezekiel 18, a little later towards the end of it, he says, Tell them this, as surely as I live, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn from your wicked ways and live. It says virtually the same thing in the 33rd chapter, Ezekiel 33, which is that also that great chapter where he sets us as watchmen on the wall to warn others. So why will you die? Take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn. Turn from your wicked ways and live. God desires that we all be saved. You know, 2 Peter 3, 9, we're told, you know, he desires none should perish, that all should come to repentance. Or 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes to Timothy and said, this is good and well-pleasing to God our Savior who wills all men to be saved. That's God's heart. That's his perfect will. But his permissive will is, is that he allows us to make our own choice about where we spend eternity. Those are some foundational thoughts. Here's another one. God chooses to reach man primarily through men. Can we look at that and we're amazed? Why would he use fallen creatures? Well, it brings glory to him. It allows us to participate in his work. From the most seasoned veteran preacher to little babes, they can say the most profound things when the Holy Spirit opens their lips and Scripture comes forth and people are saved. You know, we're commanded to preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15 says, go out and preach it to all creation. You know, we're going to do that in whichever way God provides for us. We're enabled to do so. You know, the, the Holy Spirit in, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, uh, where God is talking about, Jesus is talking about the work of the Spirit. One of the things he says is, the Holy Spirit is going to cause you to remember my words. You know, the idea there is, as you bury Scripture in your heart, it's there for the Holy Spirit to draw it out and use it. Even if you only have one verse, you can have John 3, 16, you've got the entire gospel. Just look at the verbs in there. God loved, he gave. I believed, I have. And what don't I have? I don't perish. It's a beautiful thought. You can give the entire gospel with one verse. We're commanded to do so. We're enabled. We're also accountable. I mentioned the Bema seat, you know. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, all believers are going to stand at the judgment seat and give an account. Our works will be judged, not our sin, but our works. And we will receive recompense for our deeds, be they good or evil. 1 Corinthians 3 kind of talks about them being tested with fire and burned up. 
Some of us, all our works are going to burn up. Romans 14, same thing. We're going to stand at the, the, the judgment seat. We're commanded, we're enabled, we're accountable, but we're also rewarded. You know, Paul would tell the Philippians, call him his crown, crown of joy. And writing to the Thessalonians, he says, are you not our crown of exaltation? The souls with which we have even a small part in bringing to salvation, there are crowns of exaltation. Many people call it the soul winner's crown. We're wise to do so. You know, out in the vestibule, um, Proverbs 11.30, he who is wise wins souls. Finally, a foundational thought is this. If we have the opportunity to witness about the Lord Jesus Christ to others and we choose not to, we're sinning. James you know, 4.17 says, you know, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. Well, what is the gospel? We talk about good news. Well, then we say, well, is good news bad news? But you gotta have the, I think you've got to have the bad news before you can appreciate and have any desire to accept the good news. The bad news, of course, is that we've all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, I don't get really any arguments from that when I'm out on the street preaching. Everybody pretty much admits, no, I'm not perfect. They don't fully measure it up to, to perfection. Well, it's a little harder when you get to the point that sin demands punishment. You know, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 both give us the truth that there is no one on this earth who has an excuse. All are without excuse. We're told that twice. You know, we had a brother come through here, a dear brother in Christ who was a missionary, I don't know, a year or two ago, and he made, made a mention that, if, boy, if they don't hear the name of Christ, they can't be saved. You can throw stones at me later, but I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that's true based, again, on what, what we're told there in Romans. I don't know how God's going to judge them, but he's going to judge them accordingly. What did they do with the light that they received? You know, those who, who believe God and it was counted to them as righteousness may have had an idea of, of a Messiah coming, but they didn't hear about the name of Jesus Christ. But that does not give us an excuse not to preach Christ, to preach him that he died for our sins, was buried, and was resurrected. You know, we often, and I say we, mankind in general, we, we choose to reject God despite our knowledge. Again, Romans tells us about that. Although they knew God, they, they refused him, they rejected him, did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. I, I hear some awful foolish talk sometimes from, well, I hear it from Christians. Sometimes it comes out of me too, but from those who uh, claim to be atheists. Most of them will finally admit they're agnostic, but some awful foolish and uh, bragged, braggadocio type language of what they're going to tell God when they see him professing to be wise, they think, I don't believe in God, that makes me wiser than you. Sometimes I've had them call me, I've had Calvinists tell me, you're just not very bright. I'll just quote Jesus. I praise thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast revealed this to the infants. So you can call me a baby all you want. I'll take what God says rather than what men say. You know, we're told that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they begin to worship the created thing rather than the, the creator. We have lots of definitions of sin in the Bible. You can see the lists, uh, you know, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder. Yeah, that's a pretty serious one. Strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Well, it doesn't seem quite as bad. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's a pretty broad list. 
How about Revelation 21, verse 8? But for the, but for the fearful, you know, just being fearful is a sin. It means you're not trusting in God. But for the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Who is not a liar? I'm a, I used to, we talked about this at one of our meetings. I used to be paid to be a liar. Somebody says they're not a liar. You know what? They're lying. <laughs> it most, and again, I don't, I don't, nobody argues with me on that. Everybody recognizes that. But that means we're sinners. The idea here is that no sin can ever en enter heaven. And that's the bad news. Every one of us has sinned. And you cannot take, if this is me and my imperfection, you cannot take me and be joined to God who is perfection and still have perfection. Something has got to get rid of my imperfection. That's really a basic truth of the gospel. If you don't get too much else, make sure you use some scripture, but point out that the short definition of heaven is that's wherever God is. And where God is, it's perfection. And me and my imperfection cannot get there. I don't care how good I am, how much good works I do, I cannot remove the stain, the, the stain of sin from my life. Only God can do that. It can only be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing which fulfills the requirement of the law. God is not going to let any sin into heaven. We're, we're told that in Revelation 21 and 22. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the 22nd chapter, it says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. We may not identify with the beginning of that list. Some of us would. But who wouldn't identify with the end of it? So the issue is we're all at risk. The shocking truth is that God also cannot forgive sin. He never has forg forgiven any sin. He does not forgive sin, and he never will. It's shocking, but it's a truth. Every single sin must be paid for. God is the perfect accountant, and he will leave no debt unpaid. It must be paid for. The question is, who's going to pay for it? And if you can wrap your mind around that, that makes accepting what Jesus has done much more easy to understand. We recognize, and every, again, most of the people I talk to, they, 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 they understand and desire justice for everyone else, not for themselves. That's how us humans uh, feel. We want to make sure the others get their justice. Oh, don't, I, I want a free pass. You know. it, in our heart, we know that that's not right. Speaking of who's going to pay for sin, if I pay for my own sin, as I've said before, I'll do it forever in that place I don't want to be, the lake of fire. What about the good news? If you understand the bad news and how dangerous it is for us and how sure the promise of this judgment is, it makes it more desirable to understand and accept and be glad about the good news. You know, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Like I said, God's going to make sure every debt is paid. But gloriously, that verse doesn't end there. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we don't have to pay for our sin. You know, our brother read this morning Second Corinthians 5.21. There was an unfair trade which took place. Unfair to Jesus. I didn't think it was unfair for me, but it sure was unfair for him. God looked at me and he says, Russ, you're just full of sin. You got no righteousness. But look at my son Jesus. He's full of righteousness and he has no sin. Let's make a trade. I'll take your sin and give it to him and I'll take his righteousness and give it to you. Now, 
Now you're pure. You can come into my presence. The stain of your sin is removed and now you can enter into the perfect place of heaven. You know that the wages of sin is death. But when that transfer took place, that unfair trade, and my sin went to Jesus, so did that penalty of death. That penalty of eternal death passed to the Lord Jesus Christ in my place. That lets God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ because he doesn't forgive the sin. Oh, gladly he forgives sinners. He forgives us of the penalty of our sin because his son bore the full extent of it. I don't have to make up for it at any time in my life. That ought to drive me to live in a way which honors the one who gave his life for me. You think of what W. Griffith Thomas said, I will not work my soul to save for that my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear son. You know what it would take me an entire eternity to pay for in the lake of fire? God took care of it in three hours, and that payment was eternal. It is finished. That certificate of debt that I owed was paid. It was nailed to the cross. Not, not a part of it, as the hymn writer says, but the entirety of it, all my sins. Of course, we know that when we receive Jesus as Savior, he tells us we can become children of God, John 112. You know, though our sins put Jesus on the cross, he was lifted up and nailed to the cross, Romans 4.25 says, but it says, he was delivered up because of our transgressions, but he was resurrected because of our justification. I used to struggle with that. I used to think that ought to be, he was resurrected for our justification. And you know, many of the translations do say that, but they've kind of got a footnote. Most all of them have a footnote because of or on account of. When you look at the rest of Scripture, you see that really it is correct. He was resurrected because of our justification. We're told in Hebrews 2.9, um, but we do see, speaking of Jesus, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, He's crowned with glory and honor. Jesus receives glory because of his self-sacrifice that he made for us. You know, Paul right into the Philippians talks about how Jesus is exalted above all others because he was humble, obedient to the point of death. You know, the fact of his resurrection is proof that God has accepted the sacrifice. It's also proof that he can deliver what he has promised. When Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I, am, I, am, I liveth, but I am he who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And see, I, I have the keys to hell and death. He can deliver to us what has been promised. It is the evidence that God can give life. And, you know, this was God's plan all along. If you look at what the, the prophet Isaiah said some 700 years before the time of Christ, if you look at the 53rd chapter, that, that great chapter on the suffering servant, how it paints the picture of the one who would bear the iniquities of the world. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can read in verses 10 and 11, it was, you know, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, but that he would see his seed, that he would prosper. And if you see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And again, we have this picture of him being exalted. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out 
his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's all wonderful news. Wonderful news. That he can become the substitute for me. The perfect one who knew no sin would, would take on my sin and in exchange give me his righteousness. It's, it's unfathomable. How is it possible? Like Wesley would say in that great hymn, is it possible that I can have a, I can take some ownership? I can have a part in the, the blood of the Savior? How is it possible that my King, my God would die for me? I don't have an answer. I know I'm not worth it. <laughs> Fortunately, God didn't agree with me. He loved me enough that he sent his son. Not for me only, but for the sins of the entire world. Whosoever will. Whosoever will. Whosoever is thirsty may drink of the spring of life. Well, what do we do with this? Of course, we want to share it. <laughs> and we share it without shame. You know, in, in Romans chapter 10, again, speaking to this about going out, it's in a very lawyerly fashion. Paul writes, he, he, he makes a statement of fact, and then he puts out several uh, rhetorical questions. Then he makes another statement of fact. This is to compel us uh, to action, to deeds. You know, he tells us in, in Hebrews 10, we ought to seek how to provoke, how to stimulate, how to encourage one another unto love and good deeds. That's what he's doing here. In Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> There's not a whole lot more added to that. That's a statement of fact. But then Paul starts asking questions. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? All rhetorical questions. Demanding action. The answer is obvious. How shall they preach except they be sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And then verse 17, we'll jump to verse 17, another statement of fact. So then, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, a statement of fact. We remember what is said in Isaiah 55. That says, my ways are higher than yours. You don't know mine. He says, but my word... Just like snow and rain bring forth abundance on the hills and the valley, seed for the sower and, and grain for the one who eats. He says, so my word, when it goes out, will not return again unto me void without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it forth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why you want to bury that scripture in your heart so it's available when you want to do personal work. Now we skip verse 16. That, that's also a statement of fact that tells us that not all are going to believe. You know, the perfect will of God is, is that all believe, but God is a gentleman. He will not force somebody to accept this gift. We should remember that because we're not allowed to force anybody either. In the earlier part of that chapter, we're told that some who hear will believe, and they'll have the words in their heart and in their mouth. And it talks again about the, the word of God. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness... You believe you have this righteousness. And then it continues. And with the mouth, mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Again, I used to look at it and go, uh, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That sounds like salvation. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I think we have a picture here of the first act of evangelism of a new believer. You confess with your mouth, you're witnessing to others. Look, telling the others the gospel is no different than, say, putting up a, a bright, shiny, flashing warning sign alongside a highway on a dark and stormy night because there's a bridge out up ahead. 
Because of the weather and the darkness, people would drive off of that bridge not knowing where they were heading. It's no different. I mean, it's even more important than the warnings we give our children. We teach them, don't run out in the street. Don't touch a hot stove. How could we not warn people about the coming judgment? You know, how do we share it in everyday situations? Well, first you want to have that attitude of gratitude for what we've got and realize we're called to share with others this hope that we have. You know, the, pro the prophets of old, they knew Messiah was coming, but they didn't fully understand. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them, these prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels desire to look. Holy Spirit's going to show up. If you show up and lend yourself to God, God's going to do the work. Again, we want to remember, we're sharing with others. We're not supposed to force feed them. Again, Jesus says, go out. When he sent the disciples out, he says, I'm sending you out. He says, now, I want you to be wise as serpents, harmless as dove. doesn't tell us to go out like snakes to eat the bird. He says, no, go out and be gentle. Use wisdom, the wisdom of a serpent, but, but be harmless. Do no harm like a dove. You, do, you know, I've had discussions with a number of atheists who were combative. The, the, the discussions were rocky to begin with. But when they realized I wasn't threatened by their position, I wasn't condescending, I didn't argue with them, I didn't belittle them, we walked away at the end with a friendly conversation. And sometimes I've had one of them say, I've never had a discussion like that with a Christian before. You're not all jerks. It was like, you know, that. I was thinking, if you really knew me, you'd say. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not our job to plant the seeds. You know, that's a reality also. You know, Friday night we were at Newport Pier and sharing, and I'd finished sharing with a, a couple, and I, and I turned around and I saw Alicia, Alicia Nakadate, uh, sharing with a couple of women. And all of a sudden, one of them turns off, and I hear her saying, I'm good, and she's gone. And, and Alicia turns around, she's got a little pout, and she's you know, a little crestfallen, and I walk over to her and say, how's it going? What, what, what transpired? And she says, well, I, was, I started to give him the gospel, and I gave a little bit, and I got to the part on brevity of life, and I, I mentioned, you know, you could be sitting at a traffic light, and you start to pull out, and somebody runs that red light. She says, that woman said to me, that sounds like the start of a horror movie. I'm good. I'm out of here. And, and, and I, I told Alicia, I says, you know, I think you did exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted you to do. Sometimes it's just our job to break up the ground so that the seed can be planted on a future divine appointment God has already made. I said to Alicia, think about this. How many times do, do, do we see people run red lights? I said, every time that woman sees someone run a red light, your words are going to come back. I says, the Lord knows what he's doing. I remember Jabe talking about a similar thing, a guy on a really fast highfalutin sports car pulls up at a traffic light where he was passing out CDs when the light would turn red to drivers. And this guy is like, I don't want it. And they talk about, again, maybe the brevity of life. And the guy says, I'm good. Don't, I'm not going to, I'll worry about it later. As he, just as he was getting ready to pull away, James said to him, sir, please drive very carefully. And that guy would go every time. Again, that, that the Lord will protect the seed that has been planted and bring it back to prepare that heart to receive it later. I'd say don't, don't be afraid to ask for a decision, but you don't want to push. Let the Spirit guide you. I, I sometimes ask people, is there anything preventing you from making a decision tonight? But I ask that after I've led them through the gospel and asked questions and discerned where they are. Sometimes uh, it, it can be hard to tell, but there is a difference between reluctance and refusal. And again, we don't want to beat anybody up. We're not allowed to beat people into submission. We're to lovingly reach out to them. It's better to let somebody leave, even in their misplaced peace, than to drive them away with a heart which has now been made hard. 
We want them to be soft and ready for the gospel. And that's why we need the Spirit to guide us, because if it was up to me, you know, I'm, I'm all about, you know, destroy and kill. The Lord often uses those who maybe have a disposition that doesn't fit the bill. Now, my, my heart's a lot softer nowadays than it ever used to be. But I think the Lord knew what he was saying and knew what he was doing and knew what the results would be when he said, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Ways to start the conversation. Um, you know, with our preaching team, obviously with the paint board, when we're done with the paint board presentation, the topic is opened already. And we can segue right into the gospel. We turn and ask people, do you understand what we were just talking about, what the, the guy was saying? But again, it's our, our job out there. We, we, our goal is to start the one-on-one -on -one conversations. So even from there on out, um, we use these same techniques. And I'm going to share with you some, some topics and maybe some questions that, that can make it a little easier uh, to segue into um, the gospel and so that you don't have to you know, use some sort of contorted, desperate verbal manipulations to move a conversation to the gospel. <laughs> Let the Lord do that. He'll do it. Trust me. The first topic, death. Death. This is my favorite. And yes, I'm, I'm damaged goods and maybe not quite right in the head. But I tell you, this one works good. I, I, honestly, I use it virtually every time I talk to anybody about the gospel because it's part of it. And people accept it. I often point out to people, I says, you know, we could talk about politics or music, art, religion. We're going to have disagreements, I says. But the one thing that all sane, rational people agree on is one day we're going to be dead. And everybody agrees, unless they're crazy. That allows the great follow-up question. The million-dollar question is what happens next? Then I pointedly ask each person if they know what's going to happen to them when they die. And it doesn't matter what answer they give. I've got the foundation for moving into the gospel. They say, I'll go to heaven. I go, really? You seem confident. Why is God going to let you into heaven? Or maybe you could ask, well, that sounds great. How can I get in? And their answer will tell you where they are from a scriptural basis, and you can address it. The one I get the most is, I don't know. Or, I hope I go to heaven. I always tell them, that's a good, honest answer. Um, but again, it allows, would you, if you could know, would you like to know? I said, don't trust me, I'm just some kook at the pier. But let me tell you what God said. And we can move into the gospel. Sometimes if there's a little reluctance, I'll ask people, so how long are you going to live anyways? And that often brings quite a bit of discomfort, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Again, I'm not trying to trap anybody. I'm just trying to draw them out and draw them towards uh, the appropriate conversation. I've, had some, I've never used it, but I've had some say when, you know, um, all this stuff comes up on the daily news feed. I mean, it's like it's custom made for the gospel. So it puts all these things on the tongues of people. So when you're talking, it comes up anyways. When somebody talks about how horrific or, or funny or whatever way that somebody died, I, people say, well, I ask them, well, how do you want to die? And you know, that, that can lead to some interesting, perhaps macabre dem, uh, discussions. But again, it's the same thing. You're talking about death. Everybody's going to face it. It's talked about so much that I used to think, ah, nobody wants to talk about this. It may be uncomfortable, but everybody's willing. So death, I, I, I think that's the, for me, that's the one I use all the time. Uh, second one would be morality. You know, is there such a thing? Who decides what is uh, right or wrong? You see somebody, you see it on the news, somebody does something that is obviously wrong to everybody except the person who's doing it. And you hear somebody say, what were they thinking? You know, again, another great rhetorical question. But it allows us to say, well, I don't know who decides what's right or wrong. How do you define it? And say, where does this sense of fairness come from? You know, even little children, they have a sense of fairness. 
right off the bat. They don't have to be taught that. They want people to be fair to them. You don't have to teach them that. Now, you do have to teach them to be fair to others. We know that's true also, and that's, again, evidence of, of, a, of a fallen nature. How about another topic, religion? Um, this is a great topic to discuss, but only if you aren't too defensive or you're too easily offended. You know, you know as a Christian, we were talking earlier about who, who's a Christian. You know, people say, well, I live in America, so I'm a Christian. A lot of evangelism classes teach you, don't ask if they're a Christian. I agree with Joe Reese. I think it's a great question. You can ask them when they say they're a Christian and say, good, how do I become a Christian? And again, when they tell you, you know whether they're a real Christian or not. But, you know, as a Christian, we'll, we'll need to endure accusations of real evils and foolishness that have been and are continuing to be committed by those who call themselves Christians and by some who are Christians. You know, who of us does not have some wickedness in us? I've been forgiven. My sins have been purged and paid for. I'm capable of some pretty... You know, if you knew my heart, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me. Now, I try to be a good guy all the time, but unless we're living in the Spirit and in the Word and holding ourselves accountable, you can slip into things. And we have people who really are Christians who fall into terrible sin. So you've got to have a good heart if you're going to talk, really argue about religion. I generally always use religion too. I don't necessarily ask them, do you think religion is good for the world or not? That's one of them that people can ask. Do you think it makes, it helps or inhibits somebody from becoming a good person? What I use religion for is it's universal. I don't care, you know, every place I've been in this world, I've run into people who believe there's a God. Their religions were vastly different than mine. And I get people, you see, that's proof there's not a God. They're all different. No, you're not paying attention to the, to the foundation here. Everywhere you go, people have created religion to try to reestablish, reconnect, be reconciled to this God who is, they know is distant. They're trying to figure out, how can I make up for my, my misdeeds? It's proof there that what the Bible says is true. God's put eternity in our hearts. Human nature is another one. Again, everybody struggles with making good decisions. You can ask, do people, are people inherently good or inherently evil? And again, it doesn't matter what answer they give. Either one is a good one to work with. If they say that, oh, I think people are inherently good, all you have to start asking is, well, then why do you think people do so many evil things? And they're not going to have an answer. If they say they think people are inherently evil, I, I can agree with them and move on to what the Bible says and how do we deal with it? And of course, it's the gospel. The point is, don't argue with their position in, in things like this. Use questions to draw them out and to discuss it. And again, to go back, well, you know, that's a tough one, but the Bible says, let the, the word of God speak. It's a lot smarter than I am. Finally, goodness or, or lack of it in the world, the, the problem of evil And you know, this comes up a lot. And it's a great question. The reality of evil, I mean, that's a common argument that atheists use to refute the existence of God. But I mean, even good people who are really searching, they say, boy, if God exists, why is there so much evil in this world? Now, the atheists, they, they, they construct a straw man argument. They, they, they give you two choices to say that's all there is. They might couch it like this, you know, evil exists because God is all-powerful, but he isn't good. Or they say, evil exists because God is good, but he lacks the power to stop it. We, of course, don't have to dwell and abide and live within their constrictive, warped view of God. We can go to what's, what Scripture says. You know, we, we can point out that, look... God is sovereign, but he has sovereignly set aside his sovereignty when it comes to free will with mankind for, for a time. And he is allowing man to exercise his free will, which leads to wickedness, which leads to consequences. And God is letting all that play out, but we know that there is a judgment coming. 
you know, when that final judgment has been rendered, we're going to have that paradise we all desire, that utopia, but only for those who accept it through the gospel which God gives us. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now, the real question that this, this idea of evil um, should beg of the atheist is this. We could ask them, why do you define something as evil or something as good? You, know, <laughs> you don't believe there's a God. Where, where does your sense of right or wrong come from? Who, who gave us a conscience if not God? Who gave us an appreciation for the beauty of nature, music, art, or anything else in this fallen creation even that stirs our soul? You know, I, I spend so much of my life at sea, I, I see some glorious sunrises and sunsets. I watch the whales cavort right alongside. I seem, I, I, I'm not, exa you know, I, I am prone, I'm a fisherman at times, so I am prone to exaggerate, but I'm not exaggerating. I've seen over 100,000 dolphin at the same time. I look and I go, where can they find enough food to feed them? There are things in this world that just thrill us and stir up. Where does that come from, if not from God? You know, I, atheists seldom break, but as they walk away, you can just hear that there's some cracks forming. And the honest truth is, I, I have met very few, I don't know, maybe one or two that might, I might say, yeah, I think maybe he is a true atheist. When they realize I'm not a threat to him, they'll admit, well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm really an agnostic. I don't know. I just choose not to believe. I think it's not beneficial or whatever. Look, in, in closing, over like I normally am, I, I'm sorry. Look, God may not call everyone to be an evangelist, but all believers, like we said, are, are to be witnesses for Christ. Something as simple as handing out a tract can have eternal rewards. Like I said, if you earnestly seek to spread the gospel, God's going to bless every endeavor in which you're trying to bring honor and glory to his son. Trust me. You know, as I've mentioned before, we can all participate in evangelism by praying for those who are evangelists. Those who do pray for the work are just as much a part of the salvation of souls as the one, like I said, who gives the gospel to those souls. I can tell you that our street preaching team, they're very grateful for the prayers that go up on behalf of that work from this chapel. And all the souls we see saved and the brothers and sisters in Christ from all walks of Christianity that are called back to a, a close walk with Jesus Christ, um, the rewards for that work are accrued to your accounts. That's why I, I beg you to plead for the Baptist church down the street, the Calvary Chapel across the valley. All these gatherings are around. They're not the competition. When we pray for them, you know, how many of us know people over PFB? When we pray for their ministries, whoever they are, if they gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they have victories, we're a part of that victory. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, on the other hand, there is a terrible cost Not reaching the lost. That's when he gets home. This thought terrifies me. I'm not afraid of a lot. I, I do have fears. I'm, I didn't do a lot of the things I did because I was brave. I just hated being a coward. This one strikes to the core. I challenge you to consider on that day when the lost stand at the great white throne, how many of them are going to turn to you and say, why didn't you warn me? I've watched a lot of people die. confessed before, I was glad to see some of them go. But there's going to be comrades. 
There's going to be friends. There's going to be family who's going to say, Russ, why didn't you warn me? You know, we ought to endeavor to make sure that from this day forward, those who cross our path don't go to that judgment without warning. That I still at times fail. You know, we walk hand in hand, encouraging one another, lifting one another up, but we all struggle. We all need to be reminded what's at stake. There's only two things in this world that are gonna, gonna survive. It's the word of God, and it's the human soul, and the word of God is given to save the human soul. That's why Christ came to this earth to die. He died for every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth, and we ought to have a burden to reach them. Again, not everybody's called to go out and be an evangelist, but if you want help in, in developing a personal witness and talking with people, you want to come out with the street preaching team, we'd love to have you. We won't make you get up at the board and preach. But we'd love to have you. I'll leave you with a repetition of biblical truth. God wants all sinners saved. Could you honestly believe that he would not aid you and cause you to be successful when you lend, himself, lend yourself to him for the work? And a final thought, perhaps there's somebody here tonight. You're not, you're not sure you're saved or you've been putting it off. We don't know how long we've got. Don't put it off any longer. Let's talk tonight. We can settle it tonight and have it done with. It's, it's simple to get to heaven. It is not easy. You have to swallow your pride, but we can settle it tonight. Father, we love you for your love demonstrated toward us. And we're guilty and not taken seriously what is at stake. The loss of, of eternal life by those who didn't hear or weren't convinced of the love you have for them. We pray that you would give us open doors. We pray that we would have it as individuals here from this, this little gathering. We pray that we would have it as a, as a corporate body ministering to this community. We pray that in all things we would lend ourselves to you and be sensitive to the moving of the Spirit. We pray for open gospel doors and open hearts and fertile ground that we might with love caution the lost and brag, brag with overflowing hearts about a Savior so beautiful as the Lord Jesus Christ who died that we might live. Father, we know again, as your servant John said, if we pray according to your will, we have those things for which we ask. We're praying, Father, that you give us an open door for gospel, and we know that we have those things for which we make requests. And we ask this in that beautiful name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.